This morning, as I was walking around, I was looking at the lake and the mountains and the trees, and I was just reminded of Psalm 19. And I just thought, I love that God created to declare his glory. And it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched his tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Amen. Amen. I love that God can take something that has no words and it preaches a better message than anything you'll ever hear. Amen. Amen. It's just incredible. We serve an incredible God. And last night, we saw how a sojourn turns into remaining in the land, but we also saw how God uses the circumstances of our lives to draw us back, to bring us back to him, because that's the kind of God we serve. And we were able to have an amazing time of surrender. And I'm just going to tell you, I got off of the stage and I sat here and I prayed and the Lord brought things to me that he wants me to surrender, to open my hands to, and I did. But guess what? I woke up this morning and I had, you know, clung back on to those things. And so I just wanted to remind all of you that surrender is not a one and done thing. Amen? Amen. It's not. It's something that is practiced. It's something that we continually have to let go. And this morning, I had to do it all over again. Lord, I surrender this back to you. Surrender is something that sometimes we have to do many times throughout the day, but it is in this continual practice that we learn how to live a surrendered life. We're never going to get it perfectly. This side of glory, we're never going to get it perfectly, amen? But we can get better at it. And it, the way we get better at it is we practice. I love that. Some, one of my friends told me that spiritual disciplines are disciplines because they require practice. And many times we think that, oh, well, I just do it and it should be done, but it is in a continual practice that we get better. And so last night, we left Naomi and Ruth on their way back to Bethlehem, which happens to be known in the original language as the house of bread. So you know good things are going to happen, amen? Because <laughs> when bread is involved, good things are going to happen. So let's pick up our story where we left off in Ruth 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, and the women said, is this Naomi? So she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In verse 22, it says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. You get this idea that they really want us to know she's from Moab, right? And it says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
So as soon as Naomi returns, the whole town, and that means everybody was stirred, and that word stirred in the original language means to make a, a great noise. There was much to do about it, showing probably that this family, before they left, was in good standing in that community. They, were, they meant something to that community, and her coming back alone stirred up this town. And more, more than likely, this... Um, this uproar that happened was everybody, but it was the women who came and talked to Naomi. It was the women that said, is that you, Naomi? Showing that she had known them previously. See, when she left for Moab, they stayed in the land. They stayed in the famine under the covenant promise of God. And guess what? They survived. They survived, and apparently they're in a little bit better condition than Naomi because when she comes into town, she, her appearance probably has changed from the grief and the trials that she's gone through. It's been a decade, and they come up to her and they say, is that you, Naomi? See, there's nothing like girlfriends that are straight shooters, right? They tell you the years have not been kind to you, amen? <laughs> but you know what? Naomi knows it. She already knows it. She says, you know what? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. See, she wants to be defined by her circumstances. She no longer is pleasant, but rather the circumstances of her life have embittered her. Gotquestions.org says, in its figurative sense, bitterness refers to a mental or emotional state that corrodes or eats away at. Bitterness can affect one experiencing profound grief or anything that acts on the mind in the way poison acts on the body. It's corrosive. It eats away at our mind like poison eats away at our body. That is bitterness, and that is what Naomi wants to be known by. And it makes sense, right? We just read the tragedies of her life last night. It makes sense why she would want to feel this way but she does make a choice here, a choice to be defined by her grief, her dis disappointed hopes, her failures. That's what she's wanting to, know, to be known by. And I'm sure every single one of us in this room have gone through a season like that. I know I have. But this bitterness is eating away at her. Because bitterness is like a weed that grows if left unchecked. And that's why the Bible calls it a root. Because it will affect every part of your life. It will cloud the way you see God, the way you see people, the way you see the world. It will affect every part of your life. A few years ago, I had a friend of mine come up to me and she said, you know, I've noticed that every time you talk about a certain person that you have nothing good to say. And I'm just here to tell you that if someone is doing everything wrong, then maybe it's a you problem and not a them problem. Oh man, that is convicting, right? When you have someone come up to you and say that to you, but praise God for friends like that. Praise God. Because you know what? I knew I was bitter. I just thought I was hiding it better. Apparently I wasn't. Because when there is someone in your life that can do nothing right, guess what? It's a bitterness problem. It's a bitterness problem. So a few years ago, I was speaking, and I was going to use the example that I'm going to share with you this morning, and my youngest, oh, by the way, I have to clear that up. My youngest name is not Baby Westfall. 
Um, my, kid, my, my husband told me, hey, do you know that you never gave his name? And as a 19-year-old male, he would be very offended that I called him Baby Westfall. So I figured before it gets back to him, his name is Sam. That is his name. And so um, he came to me and he said, hey, I'm going to come watch you speak. And I really love it when my kids come to watch me speak. But in this moment, I thought, oh, no, I'm using him as an example. So I thought, hey, we probably need to have a conversation because I'm going to say some things tonight. And I just need to know, do you know how I felt when I found out I was pregnant with you? And he's the typical baby of the family, and he's like, happy? <laughs> and I was like, oh no, this is going to be a lot longer conversation than I had once thought, because happiness didn't even enter into the equation. My husband and I were in this season of great loss, and we, it was one of those times when every time you turned around, it felt like something else was being taken away from you. Have you ever been there? That's a hard place to be. We were in the middle of losing a business, which came with this added bonus of a loss of reputation. So it was a very dark period of time, and we're just trying to survive, trying to keep our heads above water, raising three young kids in the middle of this time. And it is at this time I found out I was pregnant. And it felt like a kick in the gut. It really did. It felt like God was just being mean at this point. Like he was just giving me one more thing. One more thing that I couldn't handle. And really, I was super mad, which meant that for the first seven months of my pregnancy, I sat on a couch, I cried my eyes out, and I ate a lot of Hostess ding-dongs. And so I'm just letting you know that when Hostess ding-dongs enter the equation, you know you've hit a low. And that's where I was. I was mad at God because why now? I had lost a baby years before, and if he wanted me to have four kids, why, why, didn't, why did he do it this way? Why, why not give me that baby? Because right now, at that point, I couldn't financially, you know, afford another child. I, I couldn't emotionally have another child. That's where I was. I was angry. I was angry at my husband for obvious reasons, but also because, <laughs> because he came into the, my house one day after looking at me sitting in a room full of tissues and foil wrappers from leftover ding-dongs. And he said, Julie, it's time you get over it. This is going to happen. You need to accept it. And at that point, I thought he was the biggest jerk. I did, because I was bitter. I was bitter. And what bitter did, bitterness did to me was that it didn't allow, allow me to see beyond myself, didn't allow me to see beyond what I lost, what I suffered, beyond the question of why. I don't know if any of you guys struggle with the question of, of why like I do, but I'm just going to let you know, uh, many times, we don't get to know. So we waste a lot of time trying to figure out something that we don't get to know. And it will keep us trapped in bitterness. Another thing that will keep us trapped in bitterness is the statement, it's not fair. I did that too. It's not fair. And guess what? I tell my kids this all the time. Life is not fair, right? It isn't. And that is the surest way to keep yourself in bitterness. Those two questions need to be surrendered, otherwise they will consume you. A truth we need to remember that is even in loss, 
God is still working. And, and that sounds cliche when you're in the depths of it, you know? If someone came to you and said, hey, even in loss, God is still working. But I'm going to tell you something. Even if the world says that's cliche, it is not. It is truth. It is truth. God is working, and bitterness just blinds us to it. And so when my son was born, he brought back life to my family, not just my husband and I, but our kids as well. He really was. He, he was a reminder of God's faithfulness, a reminder that God sees us in those hard times of life. And you know what? God is all about life. He's all about resurrection. He's all about redemption. That's what God's about, even in those really, really dark, hard times. Sam was new life for us. And, he, and God gave us this baby that was this, fresh of breath, this breath of fresh air. And amidst the heart, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, my circumstances did not change. My perspective changed. That's what happened there. And we named him Samuel because we learned a very important lesson. God hears us. He hears us. And he knows what we need even before we know we need it. Because in a million years, if I were to write out the plan of my life, it would never have included Sam. And I think, how sad. How sad, because I would have missed out on so much. The Westfalls needed a baby named Sam. And guess what? God knew it. He knew it. And you know what? He knows what Naomi needs right now. And he sees her despite her bitterness. Despite the fact that she said, hey, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. I can see nothing but bitterness. And God's like, you know what? I still see you. And I still know that there's pleasantness in you. Amen? Amen. There's still something good there. And you can't see it. But you know what the author of Ruth does here? He tells us, you know what, even though Naomi can't see what's going on, I'm going to give you some insights that God is working. And in verse 22, he says, so Naomi returned, to, um, to return, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. He does three things for her, which she can't see. He gave her safety in her journey back to Bethlehem in a culture of patriarchy, two women making that trip in the time of the judges. It was not an easy trip to make. And yet God gave them protection. Not only that, he gave her Ruth. She doesn't even know what Ruth is going to mean to her life, just like I didn't know what Sam would mean to mine. But God did. And God gave her Ruth. And then third, God brought them back at the beginning of barley harvest, why? Because even in the hard, guess what? There's always a harvest with God, amen? There is always a harvest. And we need to expect that, to, to just release our, our holding on to what we think God should do for us and know that in his own way, he will bring a harvest. So God protected Naomi, and I love that, and he provided for her, and then he's going to give her a harvest. Let's not allow our circumstances to define our identity. It's so easy to do. Let's not allow bitterness to define us. 
to cloud our sight. Let's make that choice to believe that God sees us and that he hears us, and let's intentionally open our eyes to what God is doing, even in the small things. I have a friend who lost her daughter, and she taught me this practice of writing down five things that bring joy. Five things that we're thankful for. And she said, because there's always five things. There's always five things. And in this practice of writing down five things, we start seeing God in the very smallest parts, and it will grow. It will grow. Why? Because our circumstances aren't changing, but our perspective is. And the thing about this tool, this, this small tool of writing five things down, is it's a great way to combat bitterness. It is. Because in life, we will encounter the temptation to dive into bitterness because life is hard and grief is real and pain and suffering are, are a part of life. And we will want to dive into bitterness because bitterness seems like a way to protect ourselves. And I'm going to tell you, it seems like protection, but it's actually destruction. That's what it is. It's destruction. So when we are tempted to dive into it, write down five things. Five things and change that perspective. See, what I love about the faithfulness of God is that he still works in Naomi even when she's bitter and she can't see beyond her own bitterness. He is faithful to her. So in the second chapter of Ruth, we see God's provision for these women. So let's start reading our text at verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I want to stop there and make you realize that the author is telling us that. Ruth and Naomi don't know. They don't know anything about Boaz. They're in their life, doing their thing, and he's saying, hey, just a heads up, Boaz is out there. And then he goes back to the story. And he says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, just so happened, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, there you go, there's another thing. And behold, Boaz just happens to come from Bethlehem. And he says to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. To me, that seems self-explanatory, right? She's a Moabite. But he, it's like this, this country of Moab is what she is known by. And in verse 7 it says, She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She's made an impression on this man. And just so you know what's happening here, part of the Lord's provision for the poor and the marginalized, for those who live outside of Israel who come in and have nothing, is this idea of gleaning. And he's actually written it into his law. 
And he says to landowners, hey, harvest your field, that's great, but you make sure that you leave behind something for people to come and gather so that they can be provided for. I love that about God. That is written into his law. This is what she's doing. This is what Ruth is doing. So it shows that she's learning more about the God she's serving. Amen. And in faith, she is taking him at his word. She's saying, okay, the only thing, the only provision that I have at my disposal is gleaning. And I am a Moabite woman an Israelite. I am unprotected. And guess what? I'm going to trust you to put me in the right field. And God does that for her. See, Ruth is a testament of faith. She just, have you ever met a new Christian? And they're just like, their, their faith is contagious. I lived in Africa for a while and new missionaries would come in and they would be like, okay, we got all these plans. And then you've got all these people who've been in country for a long time and they're like, yeah, that will never work. That won't work. Way to take the wind out of their sails, right? And so I just see this in Ruth. She's just this person who's so excited about trusting her newfound faith and taking God at his word. And then the, the author gives us this really seemingly insignificant detail of Boaz coming and saying to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And at first I thought, I wonder why this would make it into the story. But then I started thinking about the context of the history. It's in the time of the judges when evil is running rampant and Israel keeps turning her back on God. God is showing us that there's still a remnant. There's still a remnant of godly people who want to be obedient to Yahweh. And Boaz is one of them. So at the beginning of this passage, the author tells us that Boaz is a worthy man. And this, this word in the original language actually means that he, is, um, that he is wealthy, that he is a man of great valor, that he, he has great strength. It really says nothing about him spiritually. We actually don't know up until this sentence where Boaz is spiritually until he speaks to his servants. Because what we say, actually the way we live says more about what we say, right? The, what we say, we can, just, we can live differently. But when we live in a certain way, we see the Lord's work. And, and we see this in how he treats those who are under him. He's like, the Lord bless you. I love this. The author shows us where he is spiritually. See, God has so permeated Boaz's life that it, it, it comes out in every part of him. And to Ruth, this must be something she's not used to. She's just recently converted. She's just come in to Israel, and she sees Boaz, and his character catches her eye, and vice versa. So they start having this conversation, this dialogue back and forth, and he says to her, hey, I want you to keep gleaning in my field. And the reason why he wants this is because he wants to protect her. He wants to provide for her and Naomi. And so he's being generous here. And in verse 8 it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not, go, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. 
Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. And the young women are the, the, the women, the servants that are harvesting. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? There's his protection. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. There's his provision. And when she, she heard this, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. It's a small town, amen? <laughs> and how you left your father and mother and the native land and come, came to the people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And in verse 13 it says, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So during this dialogue, Boaz calls Ruth my daughter. It's a term of affection or respect. It's showing that he's older than her. And really it's showing that he, she is accepted. And he goes on and he tells her all the things that he would do for her. And she is overwhelmed by his generosity. And she answers, why have I found favor since I'm a foreigner? Since I'm an outsider, she is pointing out that she doesn't belong. But he reassures her by reminding her that she does belong. And why does she belong? Because she gave up her old life. That she has left her past behind. And then he reminds her that it is the Lord that rewards and repays her. Why? Because she came under the protection of God's wings. Amen? That's what he's reminding her. He is reminding her that the covenant God of Israel is what has made her acceptable. That's what he's reminding her. She is now a part of the Israelite family when she took refuge under his wings. And she doesn't understand because what he's trying to do is explain her identity to her, but she doesn't understand. In fact, she then responds to him saying, no, no, I'm a servant. And in Hebrew, there's two words for a female servant. She's, she's identifying with the lowest one. The one, as a foreigner, you were not allowed to marry an Israelite. That's the one she's identifying with. And I find it so interesting with how much this chapter has to do with identity. We see Naomi. She's identifying with bitterness. We see Ruth identifying as someone who doesn't belong, and then we see Boaz telling her that she does belong. He's trying to explain to her her new identity under the covenant God. See, our identity matters. It matters. I just recently saw an Instagram reel, so you can take it as actual fact, right? <laughs> and it was on my friend's page, and... It was a young man explaining why identity is so important. Maybe you guys have seen it. It's amazing if you have. He said, the way you think affects the way you feel. The way you feel affects what you do, and what you do affects what you think. He said, it's a, a continuous motion. It just continues, continues, loops through and through and through. And he said, you know what else loops through and through and through? Chains. 
A chain is a continuous loop over and over and over and over again. And the only way that we can break that continuous motion is to break the cycle. And he goes on and he says that the enemy doesn't want you to find identity. He doesn't want you to find identity in God. Why? Because he wants to keep you in chains. That's where he wants you. He wants you to keep you in that continuous cycle. I love that. He says freedom is found in identity. When you know who you are, you are free to live the way, live the way God has called you to live. See, God is the one who can break our chains. He's the one. Do you know that when we come to Jesus, he opens those prison doors, but many times we stay in prison? We stay bound. He said, hey, there's freedom. But in our minds, we're in that continuous loop, believing we are something different. And we see that with Ruth. Where are you finding your identity? Because it matters. It matters. And even this morning, I was just reminded that we can find our identity in Christ in certain areas, but we can be in chains in other areas, right? The Lord just brought some things to my mind that I need to break some cycles. I need to find freedom in some areas. I thank God that he does that for us. I thank God that he doesn't show it to us all at one time, amen? <laughs> we, we need it step by step. But do you realize that no matter how these women define themselves, that Boaz saw them differently? He saw them in light of his covenant God, and no other title mattered. See, for those of us who know Jesus and are covered by his blood, we are under a new covenant. And because we're under a new covenant, you have to understand that our God is the same covenant-keeping God. We just have a new covenant. He's still a promise keeper. And he, and he still says, hey, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, uh, what, what, how you've lived your life, I've come to give you a new identity. That's what Jesus does for us. And even if what the world says about you is true, because let's look at it, what Ruth was saying about her is true. She was a foreigner. She was a servant. But she wasn't defined by those things. Those things did not define her anymore. The only title that defined her anymore is the title, My Daughter. And the same is true of all of us who know Jesus. We are children of the King. Amen? Don't choose to identify yourself by your circumstances any longer. We need to shed the guilt. We need to take off the shame. And we need to live in light of our new identity so that we can break that cycle and live in freedom. And so Boaz goes to his workers and he says, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to make it easy for Ruth to um, gather, to glean. And I want you to give her a lot, basically, is what he's saying. And because of this, in Ruth 2, 17 through 20, it says Ruth beat out what she had gleaned. So she had gleaned all that day, and then she goes and she separates the stock from the grain, and, and it was about an ephah of barley, which is, is quite a bit for a day's labor. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought it out what she had left over after being satisfied. So Boaz had fed Naomi, or Ruth, and Ruth took her leftovers to Naomi. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. That's the very first time Naomi's heard it, right there. And guess what? It changes her perspective. And she says, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. We're going to get into that tonight. But it is amazing what kindness can do. In the short interaction between Naomi and Ruth, we are given front row seats to see how one man's kindness can melt away the bitterness of someone. And it, she probably didn't get over all of her bitterness. As we know, it takes a while to get over bitterness. Amen? And, and the thing about it is that it had melted away enough for her to start seeing how God was working on her behalf. She started seeing those five things. Amen? She started seeing those things that God was doing on her behalf. Our kindness matters. It has a far-reaching impact affecting not only the way people see themselves, but the way people see God. And today, as you're going about your day and you're having a blast and you're looking at God's creation, which it has no words but speaks volumes, amen, and you're having fun with your friends and you're fellowshipping and you're just having a good time, I want you to remember to take some time and see how the Lord is working in your life. Write down your five things, five things that bring you joy, five things that you're thankful for how the Lord is working in your current circumstances. And if you're a person here that is shrouding yourself in guilt and shame, yet you name the name of Jesus, it's time to step out of that. So today, spend some time with him, asking him, how do I step out into freedom? How do I do that? Study his word. He is so, has so much insight on that. But the very first thing we can do is take refuge under the covenant God's wings. He is our protection, and he is our provision, and he redeems our story, and he brings life back to the broken, and he calls us his daughter. There was a long time in my life where I would identify myself with fear. It's just who I was. I was just afraid. That's, there's nothing you can do. It's just part of my DNA. I'm afraid. And the thing about it is that I lived in the prison of fear. I didn't go outside of it. It looked, it looked like responsibility to the rest of the world. I would have to go on every field trip with my kids, which looked like a really responsible parent. But really, the reason why I was doing it is because I thought that if I weren't there, something would happen to them. I lived in constant fear. And God took me to Africa, and guess what he did there? He said, oh, you want to know what fear is like? There's my, I think one of my children ended up in the hospital, and, and I started making plans to go home. I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not staying here if this is what it's like. God has called us to the mission field, but if, if I have my son and he is in the hospital, which they thought he had cholera at the time, I'm going home. And guess what? God met me in that hospital room. And he said, I'm bigger than the sickness. And he, he healed my son. And I think it was the very first time I realized I didn't have to live afraid. Because I had a God who cared enough about me, even outside 
of good health care. Because you should have seen the hospital we were in. You should have seen it. And I love that God broke me free. I'm here to tell you I still struggle with it. I'm no longer defined by it. I'm no longer defined by it. My identity is in Jesus. Amen. And he does amazing things to us when we get to the end of ourselves and we realize, I have nothing but you. I have nothing but you. And today, I just want you to remember that you have a God who loves you and sees you. And even if you're broken and hurting, he sees you. And he has plan and purpose for you. And your identity is in Jesus. Amen? I'm going to pray for us really fast. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much. I thank you so much that you love us enough to change us. And so many times I want you to love me in a way that makes me feel good, and yet you love me in a way that makes me good because you love me in a way that conforms me into the image of your son. And I so thank you that you do that for us. But that refining process is hard. And I just pray that we can be women that would trust you with it, that we would trust you. And so today, go with us. Keep doing a new work in our lives. In your name, amen.